Hello and welcome to the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast shares these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy today's episode. My name is Rich Schmidt. We're here with Peter Addisman. It's July 31st, 2023. We're at the Nicholson Library at Linfield University in McMinnville. Peter, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure. Uh, first question, why wine? Why not? Uh, <laughs> that, I mean, basically, uh, my parents drank wine when I was a kid. And in fact, uh, one of the things that I remember from the youth is they frequently have German wine. And the, uh, they had Zeller Schwarzkatz with a little cat sitting under the capsule, and as kids we would fight for the little plastic uh, cat. Uh, they didn't drink expensive wine, and in those days it was mostly inexpensive either. German wines or Portuguese wines. Uh, it wasn't really until uh, probably the beginning of college that uh, I had an earth-shattering uh, wine that really sent me on the journey. Well, before we talk about that, let's talk about life before that. So where were you born and raised, and where did you head off to school? I was born and raised in Brooklyn, New York. Uh, it, was, uh, it was actually a great place to grow up in those days, and probably a great place to be right now. Uh, there's a renaissance of Brooklyn. Uh, then uh, left to go to Northwestern, and from there went to the University of Illinois for medical school. And what brought me out to Oregon was uh, going to do my internship, residency, and fellowship at Oregon Health Science University. So tell me about your college experience and about the wine part of it specifically. Well, I think everybody grows uh, their wine, some wine experience in college, but it usually consists of things like Yago Sangria and Spinata and things that uh, you really wouldn't consume right now. But Actually, by senior year of medical school, uh, I started buying wine uh, and international wines uh, at a, a liquor store in Chicago. Evanston, where Northwestern was, was a dry town for most of the time that I was there. That was home of the Women's Christian Temperance League. And so there wasn't, until my senior year, any alcohol uh, at, in Northwestern. But I went to Chicago. There was a place called uh, Gold Standard that became Binney's. And this guy, Matt, uh, really introduced me to foreign wines. I mean, I remember buying my first bottle of Merceau on sale and trying that and going, wow, that's really good. A, a far cry for uh, Spignata. <laughs> and from there, it just expanded. I, uh, I did uh, probably start on my first wine trip was to Napa back in the 70s. And that was a uh, wonderful experience. I can still remember seeing Charlie Wagner in overall sitting on the porch of Camus. And uh, when Napa was in its, uh, I wouldn't say infancy, but still uh, young in its history. Great wines, not a lot of money. The wine industry there uh, was just a wonderful thing for me to experience in those days. Well, let's talk about the other part of, of life there. You mentioned medical school. So tell me about your kind of uh, education path and then career path from there. Well, I went to medical school at University of Illinois, but uh, during that time, I didn't have a lot of time to uh, drink and buy wine. I was pretty busy between uh, studying the first two years and then uh, doing the, the rotations the second two years. But from there, I went to uh, the University of Oregon for uh, OHSU for my training. 
And that really uh, cemented my uh, wine knowledge. Um, at those days, back in 1979, there were relatively few wineries, and some of them just couldn't make it. I remember going to where a, a going out of business sale for a winery called Reuters Hill. Uh, it just, you know, it just died, and a lot of the uh, small wineries just couldn't make it. But the, uh, the the pioneers did well. One of the pioneers, I know, Bill Fuller from Tualatin, decided to pack it in, but all the others are thriving and uh, really. Uh, did well and launched the industry here. Uh, and I saw the growth uh, from uh, when I was here from uh, 1979 to uh, 1985. I remember when uh, John Paul was actually building Cameron. I went out there uh, and he still was uh, banging nails and, and hammering away uh, in the early days. Tell me about your, your medical career. What were, you, what were you studying and what were you practicing? So uh, in, uh, I went to uh, OHSU for internal medicine. Internal medicine then led me into gastroenterology. And, um, and I don't know why, but I would say that more people are into food and wine and gastroenterology, maybe because we're dealing with guts and butts uh, <laughs> and, and that body function. But uh, that was really great. And actually, uh, as being part of OHSU, I turned the department onto wine, and we started uh, buying wine collectively. In those days, you could actually buy wine in volume at a wholesaler. There weren't many that were doing that, but so I ended up buying wine for the department uh, They collectively, and we all explored wine. I think probably more than any other place, uh, my wine knowledge grew uh, from great wine buys, uh, wine shop in, uh, in Northeast Portland. In fact, I've Never forget the address, 1515 Northeast uh, Portland. And Rachel Starr started that shop in the early 80s, and a bunch of wine geeks would show up there every Tuesday night for a tasting. And we tasted not just Oregon wines, but international wines. And I mean, I remember having my first bottle of Lafitte Rothschild there, uh, my first bottle of Chateau Beaucastle there. My first, oh, we, we tasted the 88 Woodward uh, Heritage Series there when it just was released. And I was so blown away by the quality of the wines coming out there. And we tasted Oregon wines too. But it was really learning about wine beyond Pinot Noir, Chardonnay. And uh, I really grew my wine knowledge there. And then in 1985, I decided to leave Oregon uh, and uh, take a job in New York as a gastroenterologist. And I, I was on Long Island, and I went to a tasting there. And the tasting was, everybody bring a bottle of wine and we'll taste it. Well, that didn't work out so well. I brought actually a, a great bottle of uh, 81 Bowcastle, and uh, someone else brought a Margot. But then we had things like bull's blood and uh, stuff that just wasn't worth tasting. And I said, okay, I'm gonna need to start up a tasting group. So in 1985, we started up a tasting group. To this day, still continues long after leaving New York. And uh, we did, uh, it was fantastic. I, everybody learned a lot. That, uh, uh, people that were part of my wife's uh, medical career, she's an internist, she was an academic uh, physician, and she was at Stony Brook. And a lot of the Stony Brook people came, people from basically all over uh, Long Island. And those third Thursday tastings 
continued until I left and then have, contain have continued since I left with uh, one of the groups. As you were exploring the world of wine for this lens, what were the wines you found most attractive? What were the things you were most excited about? Well, I can tell you how I first got excited about wine. It was my uncle that uh, Thanksgiving in the 70s opened up two bottles of Bordeaux. He opened up a 1970 Fijiac and a 1970 Gloria. The Fijiac was something I'd never tried anything like that before. And I said, OK, now my dad's got to step up the game here. And no more just inexpensive Portuguese wines that we're drinking. Uh, and they were good, but these were just mind-blowing wines. And that really started uh, the, uh, my crusade into uh, fine wine. I know I, um, I was, I'm old enough that I bought uh, 82 Bordeaux on Futures. Uh, and in those days, it wasn't that much money. I mean, you could buy uh, Chateau uh, Mouton for you know, 45, 50 bucks. Uh, and as well Lafitte for not much more. So I bought a lot of 82 Bordeaux's. And you know, you then went into Burgundy and you um, continue your, your uh, learning and, and experiences. Uh, but I still, still drink wine from all over. Uh, Bordeaux, Burgundy, Rhone region. Um, a lot of my more recent wine education has come through wine trips. Uh, and I'm going to give Ewald Mosler credit for that. Back in 2004, we did our, he said, Peter, you need to come to Germany to the wine auctions. So we go to Germany, and it was just an amazing trip. I mean, I'd done trips to in Napa and Sonoma and to uh, other local wine regions. But I was fortunate enough to meet his, his family, his mom, his sister. Uh, the, his, local, his town is uh, Zeltingen Rocktisch. That town had their wine festival that weekend. Uh, I got to meet uh, people like uh, Wilhelm Hogg from Fritz Hogg. And in fact, uh, he had a, a gout attack while I was there. So I told him that he needed to get some indomethacin. And I became his uh, US doctor, in a sense. He, and he remembered me. I've been back. Uh, he subsequently died a few years ago. But uh, he, uh, he always remind, remembered me as his US doctor. Um, and I've been back. So I had such a great experience that year that I told my friends in Medford, I said, you guys need to go to Germany. And so the next trip, a year later, we went back to Germany, did the wine auctions, went to Alsace. And that started our uh, annual wine trip. So the first trip that we did as a group was in 2005. Um, and Ewald was there for that one. Uh, and in fact, it then took people from another, uh, from Great Wine Buy. So after we left Germany, they were over there. And since then, we've gone every other year to Europe and every other year a domestic trip. And with the idea, with more often being uh, here in the wine country, but we've been to Sonoma. Uh, we did. We keep talking about going up to Walla Walla. Then we start here, and we never leave. <laughs> we never leave the Portland area. So the domestic trips are generally here. Uh, but we've been to uh, Alba several times, Burgundy several times, uh, Bordeaux once, uh, Tuscany, uh, Piedmont. Um, Southern Rhone, uh, we've done actually all of Rhone. So really, 
I mean, if you have the ability to do that, you really uh, get an intensified knowledge of that region and those wines. So really great experiences. My day job allows me to do that. <laughs> you mentioned Medford in there. So tell me about getting from New York back to Oregon. Well, we had kids, and once we had two kids, we thought, uh, we really don't want to be on Long Island. When we, before we had kids, we lived an hour outside the city, and we would go into the city. And, and in fact, one of the things that I really enjoyed doing was uh, there's a, there was a, a tasting group in New York called Executive Wine Seminars, which was uh, uh, Howard Kaplan and uh, Millman. Um, and I used to go in there, but it was such a pain in the neck to go in there. I almost, used a different word, <laughs> different body part, but it, uh, that uh, it, even that became difficult. I mean, in, in those days, I went to a, a, a vertical of Mouton dating back to 1928. I did a La Moline, La Landon, uh, La Gigal uh, uh, tasting. I did all these things that weren't insanely expensive in those days, but I stopped going because it was such, so difficult. And with kids, you just took away too much time from the kids. And once we weren't going into the city and playing in the city, we said, let's go back to Oregon. Mm -hmm. And uh, Medford, uh, we had friends in Medford, and they were looking for a gastroenterologist, and we thought we'd do that. And in those days, I have to say, I didn't think Medford and the Rogue Valley would become a wine destination region. Uh, we had a couple of wineries, and they weren't bad, but they were, you know, more mom and pop. We're going to get nobody with a lot of classical training and not really producing the wines that are being produced today. So we moved there not with the idea of becoming a winemaker, just the idea that I can live five minutes from my office in the hospital and just a nice, easy life and a good place for the kids to grow up. And that's how we ended up there. What year did you move back? I moved back in 1991. And, uh, and we, uh, we actually uh, bought a house on 0.7 acres, and I turned the front yard into a vineyard. <laughs> we planted 139 vines, got, you know, and I thought, I should have stopped then, but I didn't. And uh, after the beginning of the Great Recession, I said, okay, this is a toy vineyard. We need a real vineyard. So we looked for a property that, again, was convenient, easy, and I thought would produce uh, good wine, a nice uh, kind of hillside property, which is uh, where we are today. So we bought that property in 19, well, excuse me, in uh, what year was it, 2008. And it took us about three or four years to get the land prepped, because when we bought it, it we, they had a bumper crop of poison oak and blackberries. So we hired, yeah, just not where you, where you want to go. So we uh, got the biggest cat to come in there and rip it. And uh, we pulled out all the roots, ripped everything, did a little spot spraying that we're not necessarily proud of, but had to do it. Uh, and now there's no poison oak. Blackberries continue because the birds plant the seeds. But uh, we actually have a, a 9.6 acre vineyard on a 17 acre property. And people say, you're going to plant some more? And I said, no, I'm going to retire one day. And I uh, don't really need to invest more money into that. But um, I, uh, you know, I saw the potential for the Rogue Valley you know, long before we even bought the property. Uh, people were starting to make really great wine there. Um, we 
have a small amount of Pinot being grown there. There are a couple of cool properties, but for the most part, uh, our property is south-facing. Uh, we are um, pretty good hillside. Um, I know it when I have to walk up the property. And it's, uh, it's planted to Syrah, Grenache, uh, Malbec, and Tempranillo. And we just grafted over and now have Roussan. But we also buy a lot of grapes. We uh, buy Chardonnay from a cooler site. We couldn't grow Chardonnay. It just wouldn't work well. Mm -hmm. uh, we grow, we do have, a, uh, we grow uh, uh, Roussan, which we're going to make our first varietal Roussan this year. Last year, we didn't have quite enough Roussan to do a uh, monovarietal, so we made an MRV, Marsan Roussan Viognier. Uh, that turned out fantastic. Uh, Eric Weisinger, one of our winemakers, uh, did that, incorporated our grapes. But this year we should have enough for a, uh, a, a Roussan, which is a great grape. Not everybody knows of it, but we won't have that much. And I think uh, when people try it, they'll appreciate it. Tell me about finding the property and deciding that was the place you wanted to invest. Well, uh, it just came about when one of my friends said, uh, one of the hospital administrators who owned it was moving and had this property. And their house, uh, he's a, uh, my friend Mark, a cardiologist in the, the valley, has a beautiful view over uh, uh, the valley. And I said, I want a property with a view. We had a nice view in the old house, uh, but it was limited. And I said, I want a, a something with a view. And so we found this place. And even though it was, uh, I know, a project and a lot of money to get it set for a vineyard, I knew the soil was good. I knew it didn't have boron. It has a nice slope. Uh, this way, we wouldn't have to worry about rain at harvest. Um, these days, we don't have to worry about rain ever. Uh, but uh, it's, uh, it was just a, a great place to be. And it's six and a half minutes from my office with one stop sign. I mean, how, how much better does it get that you can actually live on 17 acres, have a 10-acre vineyard, and be six and a half minutes to work with one stop sign, not even a traffic light. And you know, I'm a city boy. I grew up in Brooklyn. I need restaurants. I, I need stuff. I can't, I mean, I, I, I drive through the, some of the wine country uh, uh, and the Applegate, and it's gorgeous, but it's, that's a little bit too remote for me. I kind of need a, a, a city vineyard, in a sense, that has services and, and, and not have to drive much. So clearly, by that point in your life, you had a pretty solid understanding of wine. What, what's different about putting in a vineyard and, and producing your own wine? Well, I mean, you have, the, the, the big difference is now you have to sell your wine. And so, and I thought that the potential of Syrah in the Valley was probably the most important grape that we have. So half my vineyard is Syrah. And then Everybody, of course, told me the standing joke in the, uh, about Syrah. And for those that haven't heard it, I will tell you, what's the difference between a case of Syrah and a case of gonorrhea? Well, you can get rid of the case of gonorrhea. So that joke was uh, told to me so many times when I was planting. And I said, I'll sell it. I'll sell it. I'll sell it. And interestingly enough, we just uh, had a review from the judges of the Oregon Wine Experience, which is our big wine festival down uh, in southern Oregon in the Rogue Valley. And they were just gushing about Syrah. 
And so um, I think I made the right decision. Not always the easiest, uh, and we've gotten uh, double golds and, and really good medals for our Syrah. So that was good. Tempranillo, um, I like Tempranillo as a grape. I drink Spanish wines, and uh, I have to give Earl Jones uh, most credit for uh, planting Tempranillo and, and producing world-class Tempranillos just north of here in the Roseburg area. And I thought the valley would do well with that. I changed clones a little bit because we're a little bit hotter site than where he is. Uh, and I did a Toro clone because Toro is really hot in Spain. And the Tempranillos have worked out really, really well. Um, Grenache, I just planted that because I like it. Uh, I'm, I, I've yet to see world-class Grenache, but really good Grenache. And our Grenache is a little bit different than like Rhone wines. I think part of it is just young vines and don't, uh, don't dig down quite as deep and get the minerality that we'd like, but it has nice red, sweet cherry fruit. Um, and uh, I, I, I think I did a pretty good job of choosing varietals. Malbec is just popular. The hard part of Malbec is competing against very inexpensive Argentinian Malbec. Ours, we can't compete you know, with, with that price. We can compete in quality, and we've done new world, old world type Malbec tastings, and I think we do well there, but I, I can't compete on that price because they bought that property maybe a century ago, and they have less expensive labor costs, but still able to uh, produce great Malbec at, at an affordable price. What about uh, sort of selecting a team and building, finding a winemaker and finding a way to, to kind of start the, start the brand? Well, that, that was uh, a challenge. Um, I, uh, I chose a couple of winemakers. The first uh, winemaker, uh, first two winemakers were Eric Weisinger, who Weisinger Family uh, Winery. Great guy, great winemaker, um, and I was really happy there. There was one winemaker uh, that we had, which was Pallet, uh, Linda Donovan, excellent winemaker. We weren't as, uh, it wasn't as easy to um, uh, be, as, uh, be a part of the team just because she was so busy. She's the busiest person in, uh, making wine in Southern Oregon. So it was, it was a challenge. And we've made some great wines with her. We actually moved towards more of a Rhone direction of wines in uh, Barrel 42 or Quaddy. And so now the predominant winemakers are uh, Eric Weisinger and Barrel 42 slash Quaddy. Quaddy is the brand that they have, but uh, Barrel 42 is the custom crush entity. Uh, we actually have a small amount made by Scott Steingraber from Chriselle. Uh, we've had a small amount made by Kylie Evans uh, from Two Hawk, that's now changed its name to Patagon. Uh, and um, we've had, uh, I, I suspect that uh, the main winemakers will be Barrel 42 and Eric Weisinger. The, they do a great job. And Eric's gotten very busy, but still making great wines. He's making wine in Texas now, as well as in Southern Oregon. And Chriselle doesn't really do a lot of custom crush, but they're kind enough to work with our grapes and provide us some wine. Tell me about, um, with the different winemakers you've had, about finding the style you like and sort of communicating that for, to, with your winemakers. So um, we really, really are trying to make elegant wines. 
Um, some of the winemakers, and I know, for example, uh, Palette, for example, uh, likes ripe wines, and their wines tend to be a little bit higher in alcohol. Uh, she likes really ripe fruit. And that's not necessarily where we wanted to be. Um, we can't help getting reasonably high alcohols just because it's hot down there. Um, you know, it's going to be in the 90s all week, and we're just happy when it doesn't get into triple digits. And so uh, making elegant wines, it's not always possible, but that's the goal. Uh, in 2019, we had an unusual harvest of uh, really cool weather towards the harvest time. We had November and September, and then we had September and November, and, and uh, after uh, didn't harvest until October because of the cool weather. And the wines are lower in alcohol and actually have a really pretty elegance to it. Uh, that has uh, that, that won't be the norm because climate change, you know. Uh, but that is our goal: is making balanced, elegant wines, and our winemakers uh, really strive for that. Uh, last year we picked the Syrah, it was a little bit, the, the bricks just escaped, you know, and got pretty high all of a sudden. So you just have to add a little bit of uh, water to that and bring them down and it actually worked. The Syrah that's going to come out from uh, this last year, 2022, it's going to be fantastic. We have water this year, that's amazing. We haven't seen that in a couple of years. Uh, we, uh, we are on talent irrigation, which gives us a water source. But last year, they cut the water off in June, just when you need it. And we had no water. So last year's harvest was, was challenged by frost early on, drought, and we had very little fruit, which is, I guess, God's way of correcting my inventory. <laughs> it just, uh, you know, last year, we have Malbec at uh, or Tempranillo, 1.76 acres, dense planting, four by six spacing, and we had 1.1 tons of fruit. That is nothing. That is nothing. We made for the first year no Tempranillo or Malbec, next to no Malbec. Uh, and even Grenache that grows like a weed was uh, uh, down in quantity just because of uh, water conditions. Great fruit. I mean, it's, we're going to have great wine, just not very much of it. So the correction is on. We unfortunately uh, were part of the fiasco of copper cane a few years back. I don't know if you remember what happened there. They contracted with everybody in the Rogue Valley. And I had a contract, as almost everybody else did. And then they decided, because of, quote, smoke taint, they were not going to take the wines. Now, we grow Syrah, which has some inherent smokiness to the grape when there's zero smoke. And some of the same uh, chemicals are in the, in the grape itself. <clears throat> Fortunately, they didn't take the wine, uh, the grapes. We made wine out of it. And we've gotten really great press and gold medals and double golds and things of, uh, and, and scores in the 90s from the wine that they, grapes that they rejected. But it did create an inventory problem to start with. Instead of making 150 cases of this and 100 cases of that, I was in the 450 case category of each of these things. So we ended up producing about 1,500 cases of wine. For a small young winery, that's, that's a lot of wine. Yeah. Well, tell me about selling it. You said you could sell Syrah. So tell, tell me about how you've sold Syrah. You get, um, get people to try it. I mean, that's basically the, the best thing. Um, the, uh, the judges this year 
uh, were out and uh, tasted Syrah, and they had my Syrah at one of the dinners uh, at a restaurant in Ashland. I'll give them credit, Alchemy. And we have a couple of Syrahs on the list, and I heard from not the judges themselves, but one of the, uh, the dinner coordinators, they, oh, they loved your Syrah. <clears throat> so it's just getting the word out. It's not easy. It takes a little bit of time, takes a lot of energy, tastings and tastings. And even here, I mean, my, we have um, three or four restaurants in uh, the Willamette Valley, and uh, people come here to taste Pinot and Chardonnay and maybe some Pinot Gris, but at the end of the day, and they've tasted, you know, 10, 20, 30 Pinots, they might like a glass of Syrah at dinner. And so we're at a handful of restaurants in town. And uh, going back to the kind of my original wine experiences and wine trips, Avold Mosler is our distributor up north. So uh, he takes care of the Willamette Valley and the Portland area. And it's just getting people to taste the wine. I mean, it's great wine. And, you know, no one, no one goes up to uh, uh, the bar at, a, at an, uh, an event and says, I'll have a glass of Syrah. It's either Cabernet or Chardonnay or maybe a Pinot. But if you can have it available for the, by the glass, and that's really where it comes down to getting glass pours. Uh, we've had a number of restaurants in the Willamette Valley and in Portland that have had our sarong glass pours. So that's, that's really the exposure that we need. Been fortunate enough, Avald's been great for us there. So you talked a little earlier about when you got to Medford, you didn't necessarily foresee it becoming a wine, the wine place it's become. So tell me about the evolution of the Rogue Valley as you've been there and uh, where it is now, where it kind of is now in, it, in its wine life. So the Rogue Valley is a pretty big valley with incredibly diverse climate. And uh, you have Sam's Valley, uh, which is very hot. You have uh, microclimates uh, that can grow Pinot and Chardonnay. In fact, one of our producers was at the Oregon Wine Experience at IPNC yesterday. Uh, Danson, they have a nice cool area outside of Jacksonville. Irvine and Roberts it grows Pinot and does a great job. Pinot and Chardonnay just uh, to the east of Ashland. But most of the areas are pretty hot. And so it's taken time to find their grape varietals. We still have people that have um, planted varietals that are probably not best suited for where they are. And that's just taken time for, the, for evolution to weed out some of those wineries. Some of them are underfunded, and that makes, that's difficult. But I, I look at the Rogue Valley in, in, in a sense similar to what the Willamette Valley was when I moved to the Willamette Valley in 79. You had the pioneers, you know, like Dick Erath and, and Ponzi and, and Bob Fuller and all these people that were working together to make the best wine. I, our winemakers do uh, work together. They have great respect for each other. And so the wines have really improved. Um, I'll give you an example that uh, the judges talked about. They tasted a, a Tarica Nacional that they really enjoyed. They tasted a Montepulciano that they really enjoyed, that they had no idea that they said as good as any of the Montepulcianos in Italy. Um, how do you market that? That's a, in a sense, it's a one-off. And you know, Napa has its identity in Cabernet. Um, you know, Willamette Valley has its identity in Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. Uh, how do we get our identity? Because we have so many different varietals. Uh, we, <coughs> excuse me, we, 
We grow so many uh, varietals, and I think time will sort itself out because you can't market everything. You have to be able to market a varietal, and, and I think Tempranillo has its place, Syrah has its place. The only ones that really have claim to Syrah would be Washington State. They do a great job. Ours are a little bit lighter and maybe not as big and as rich and certainly not as expensive as some of the, uh, the uh, Cayuse and other producers up there. Uh, so I think that's where, that was one of the reasons I chose varietals where I did, that we have potentially a source of identity. Um, we, we do grow some really good Chardonnay and Pinot, but uh, that's probably not going to mar be easily marketed uh, as a region. Um, I think Cabernet Franc, unfortunately, I can't grow that. Uh, I'm buying it this year. Uh, Cabernet Franc is really a good varietal for uh, Southern Oregon because no one really owns the, I, a Cabernet Franc identity. Uh, Sonoma really is uh, Pinot on the coast and, um, and, and within the uh, you know, uh, more central areas, uh, still some Pinot. Uh, but you, you look at regions like the Monterey area in the 70s was growing Cabernet because everybody wanted Cabernet. Well, they never made great Cabernet down there, and they figure that that is not the, our varietal. We better plant something else. And I think we're, in a sense, we're growing through some of that in uh, Southern Oregon. Um, it's not to say that we can't grow good, you know, uh, uh, Cabernet. We there is some good Cab out there, but it's not. It's not never going to be our source of identity. So obviously you mentioned that that's, that's been something that Southern Oregon's been dealing with a while, not having kind of the flagship varietal. Tell me about how you've seen sort of the, the tourism and the, and the sales of wine change as you've been there. Um, do you find that people are identifying Southern Oregon more and more as a wine place? We are getting more tourism. We, we now have a Rogue Valley organization that uh, promotes tourism. Um, I think that some people look at us as kind of like being in Napa in 1979. You know, uh, most places uh, either charge nothing for tastings or they charge minimal amount of money for tastings. Um, what we have and what we need to market in Southern Oregon is not just wineries and not just, uh, you know, wine-related stuff. We have whitewater rafting. People come here for the Rogue uh, to go down the whitewater. We have the Upper Klamath. We have uh, we have theater, we have Shakespeare, we have a music festival called Brit. Uh, all these things that people can enjoy above and beyond uh, the wine. So that's really where co-marketing has to occur. That it's the full package. Um, and I would say up until 10 years ago, we had a relatively limited number of great restaurants. Well, that's been corrected. We have a lot of great restaurants. Um, we have. I think one of the best Italian restaurants uh, in the, uh, not just the state, but in the country. It's a great restaurant. We have wonderful continental restaurants. And I don't want to name names because I'll leave some of my other, uh, you know, uh, friends and customers out. But so many great restaurants now. So that, it, you've got to get the whole package together. You can't just have wine. Wine, you have to have good wine. Otherwise, it doesn't work. But once you have good wine, you then say, what else can you offer? Uh, you know, the, uh, we were in McMinnville last night and having dinner. And there's so many good restaurants here, so many good restaurants in Portland. Um, you know, this is a foodie state. 
And now I can say Southern Oregon is participating in that foodie state. So we've come a long way. I want to back up a little bit to talk about your sort of initial impressions of Oregon. So we've talked about kind of the Southern Oregon parts. So tell me about the, the, Northern, the North Valley as you got here in the, in the 70s. Tell me about what you saw from the Oregon wine industry at that point. Mom and pop operations. Um, you know, it, it was, there were people just trying to make a living, uh, growing grapes and making wine. But as been identified in multiple documentaries, they all work together. Everybody realized that uh, most of them didn't have formal training and, um, and not every wine was fantastic. And really the big change that's happened in uh, the Willamette Valley is weather. You know, if you go back to the 70s, I mean, one of the reasons I moved out of here in 1985 is I'd had it with the rain. I mean, I, I ended up with a good job in New York and, and I was you know, happy to go home where my family was but I'd had it with the rain. And th that has changed. There's less rain. Uh, there's warmer climate. There, uh, people have uh, been able to, climate change has been very good to, in some ways to uh, the, the Willamette Valley. Um, I think that we don't want any more climate change uh, because it may get too hot. And that's what's happening, of course, in Europe. And we're on wine trips where People are thinking of planting different varietals. I mean, you know, even on the, uh, the right bank of Bordeaux, uh, we went to a couple of wineries that said, yeah, I think we're gonna plant some cab. We just have to uh, be prepared for any further climate change. You know, when you're, when you're able to grow grapes to make red wine in England, you've gotta be able to, you know, change your philosophy. But I think climate change has been overall a really good thing. If you go back to the 70s and 80s, there weren't a lot of great vintages in those days uh, based on weather. A lot of rain, a lot of rain. So I don't think, uh, we still have occasional vintages that are cool climate, but even the cool climate vintages that we have, um, they still ripen enough to get really great wines that are structured and, um, and that's true both in southern or and as well as the northern part of the state. So how have you seen the industry grow then? Obviously you've seen most of its growth. You've been aware of it for most of the time it's been around. So what are the biggest changes now in Oregon wine versus when you were introduced to it? So much better. I mean, uh, quality. I mean, and that has to do with so many factors. I mean, uh, I'm sure, and I can't speak to this in, in the northern part of the state, you know, but I, uh, I, you know, we've, I'm sure clones have changed people planting different clones, uh, you know, Dijon clone and this clone and that clone that necessarily weren't there. Vadensvale was big in the past. I think Vadensvale is a lot less popular now. So, you know, I think adapting to the changes in environment and money. <laughs> you know, when you have big money, you can do a lot more uh, and you can, uh, you know, make better wine with big money. It doesn't mean you are going to make better wine, but you certainly have the ability to uh, to uh, make cleaner wines and you have uh, a better facility. Um, I think it's, we've, we've had uh, lots of French winemakers come over and share their experiences now. Um, and uh, we're now making, I think more, some people are making more Burgundian style Chardonnays that you would, uh, that wasn't being done years ago. So I think that it's just a natural evolution. 
I mean, I think that uh, the combination of climate change, uh, experience, older vines, and money. <laughs> and I mean, that's where Rogue Valley still is limited. We have really no big corporate entities that have bought into the Rogue Valley. They are now buying land, and that's going to probably be true down in uh, southern Oregon because it's uh, it has to happen. I mean, you know, they're looking for uh, different varietals and and also less expensive land. I mean, there's not much left in uh, Napa. So you've got to then figure where are you going to, you know, where, what are you going to do? By the way, I can tell you that there's a winery in Napa that sells their wine for a lot of money that has bought our Viognier several times. In fact, we just shipped out another case of the new vintage. And so it's really gratifying to see uh, some of uh, Southern Oregon's wines going down to Napa, not just Napa wines coming up to Oregon. I mean, they, I wanted to do an exchange program, except my Viognier is $27 and their Cabernet is 135 So I don't think they were going to do a bottle-per-bottle -bottle exchange, but I'm just happy to have it down there. And actually, just exposure. I was just at my wife's reunion, and she went to University of Michigan. I got to see Ann Arbor for the first time. Wonderful campus, beautiful uh, community. And I brought six bottles of Peter William wine, and I now have new customers and uh, people to ship to uh, around the country. One's up in Seattle, another one that's in the Bay Area, so places that I can ship to and uh, are fans of Peter William. Getting our wines out there is just, that, that's the hard part. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, the, uh, it's, it's not easy to get. We're, small, we're so small that we can't be in uh, major distributors. We'd get lost in a book like that. So tell me about with, with your brand, what are the sort of the milestones for you so far? What are the things, the kind of the highlights along the way of, of the Peter William brand? Well, I think Viognier, uh, just mentioned that. We've uh, had three vintages uh, reviewed by the wine enthusiast. And we've gotten a first vintage got a 94, second vintage a 93, third vintage a 95, the highest score ever given to a Southern Oregon wine. So we're really proud of that. We've gotten uh, scores in the low to mid-90s on a number of wines. Uh, hard to get your wines into a lot of the, you know, uh, the, the big journals. So the wine enthusiast has been very kind to us. Um, we've not been in the wine spectator. You can't just get into the wine advocate easily. Um, so uh, it, if it happens, that's great. But fortunately, uh, local, uh, uh, you know, local events like the Oregon Wine Experience uh, we got a double gold and best of class for a wine called Extravagance. Um, and the wine's pretty extravagant, but I certainly like it. So, you know, the, uh, it's just, it, it's, it's been great. Uh, and, and I'm so happy and pleased that we've gotten good press. Um, and I have to say, uh, this is going to sound kind of weird, but I, uh, saw somebody I knew the other day and did a colonoscopy on them. And then they went out and bought eight bottles of my wine, sent me a picture of their shopping cart filled with eight bottles. So sometimes your day job even further supports your, uh, your hobby. Now, you don't have to have a colonoscopy to buy my wine. I want you to know you can do it without a colonoscopy. But that is, uh, uh, that was just a, that happened just two weeks ago. So 
And uh, you know, I, being in a small town, I can tell you, uh, I'm gonna divert for a second, but uh, one of the attendings I had at OHSU uh, said, I can't imagine you in a small town. When I moved back to Medford back in 1991, and I said, Actually, I love it. I mean, you know everybody. Uh, it's it really it's grown a lot, but at the same time, I've been there now for thirty some odd years, and I know a lot of the community, and that that helps too in uh, providing a base. Um, also, one of the unintentional marketing tools I had is I love to eat out, and so we'd go to a lot of restaurants long before Peter William uh, Winery existed. And so uh, I had the support of the restaurant community early on, so. Well, my next question was gonna be kind of about along those lines in terms of sort of balancing the two, balancing a practice and, and a winery. Tell me about sort of doing both and, and how, you, how you make it work. It's not easy. Um, tomorrow is my last day as partner in the practice, okay? So July 31st. I was actually going to retire uh, January 1st of this year, and uh, the practice has dwindled down with losing. Uh, we, we had an a, a older practice group, and a lot of people have retired. So we went from eight partners down to five as of January 1st. And as of tomorrow, uh, we're losing two more, myself being one. So we'll be down to three. And so uh, it's, and it's, it's not just here in, uh, in Oregon, or not just in Medford. My brother is uh, just retired from a cardiology group. His group is half the size. And so there's an inadequate number of healthcare providers, whether it be physicians, uh, mid-levels, whether nurse practitioners and, and PAs, uh, healthcare providers and nurses. It's just a crisis in healthcare right now. Uh, people come up to me all the time and say, can you find me a primary care physician? And I tell them, no, I wish I could. I actually called a friend to be my primary care physician, and it turns out he's a nephrologist and I don't have really kidney problems. He said, you don't need me. I said, no, I need someone who's a good doctor. I said, and I really want you, and I'll throw some wine in there. Not a, I mean, here it is, I have full insurance and wine. So he took me on, but it's not easy. So I'm, as of Tuesday, I'll be working for the group, not as a uh, partner, but as an employee in the group. And the reason the, the, in healthcare, what gets people to retire is being on call. You just can't do it forever. Uh, you can work pretty much forever, but being on call is not easy. Uh, and I just don't wanna give up any more weekends of my life. Um, I'm almost 70, and you don't know how many weekends you have. But I've been doing on call since 1985, and a lot of weekends, and I think that's it. These days, I usually work until about two o'clock and then start delivering wines. And basically, it's one other guy, Fred Gold, who is the director of marketing, and myself, and all the others are basically people that volunteer and help, and we're really lean and mean. Uh, we, uh, uh, in fact, we're up here with uh, another couple that helps me in wine tastings, and, um, and they, are basically uh, friends, and she's my, one of my medical assistant as well. So it's a, it's a family, you know, basically it's a family event, and, um, and we're able to get by. So when people say, what do you do? I said, I'm chief check writer and chief wine schlepper. I'm the wine schlepper, that's what I do. 
Uh, and so I'm out there until you know, five, six o'clock delivering wine. Uh, and my wife's been very patient. <laughs> I think maybe it works out well because I am gone. Who knows, you know, but uh, she's been very good. Um, and, I, and I actually, I still enjoy going to work. I, I enjoy going to work in the morning. I can't do nothing. I'm not good at that. I, I have to be busy. And so uh, having two jobs, I mean, doesn't get better as long as I have the weekends to myself. So I'll travel more. That's what I'm looking forward to is being able to just, you know, travel more. And when you go to work and you don't have to work, it's a lot nicer than when you go to work and you have to go to work. So I have that uh, going for me. So congratulations on your so, sort of retirement, I guess. Sort of, sort of yeah. not retirement tomorrow. Yeah. Um, how are you, as you look ahead for sort of balance between the two things, is that, does that mean you have sort of expectations for Peter William that are going to change, or is most going to stay the same? I think it's going to stay the same. I, you know, I have more land that I can plant more grapes. And people say, definitely, you should plant more grapes. And in fact, one part of the property, because we own 17 acres, um, it basically could uh, be a really nice vineyard site. It's, it, the guy who actually put in the vineyard, who's retired now, lives up in the Willamette Valley. Uh, he said, this is the best plot you have. But it's not visible from my house. It's off to the side. So, um, well, I don't think I'm going to do that. I just don't want more cash outflow, I, uh, I'm happy with where we are. Uh, we're pretty much able to sell what we produce, uh, with the exception of that bump from Copper Cane. And uh, other than that, everything else is pretty much in balance. And I'm right now, what I've done to try to have direct-to-consumer uh, is get some small lots. So this year, we're going to be making a Semillon. I tasted Semillon from another producer, and I thought, oh, this is really good. I like the grape. It's like I like Roussan. Uh, and you know, I'm not going to go out on a Roussan crusade. I'm just going to have a small amount, and it will turn people on to Roussan. You know, I would say 90% of the people in the valley outside of the wine industry have never even heard of the grape, as well as Semillon. I'm now, this year, contracted to produce a small amount of Cabernet Franc. So the growth will be in small lots to sustain our wine club. Um, rather than uh, necessarily putting more wine out in the general public. Direct-to-consumer, obviously, is what everybody tries to do. Uh, we've had some bumps in the road with Jackson County and opening to the public. And right now, I think my wife would be challenged to have people coming to our house every weekend uh, to taste wine. So I've, we've sort of had some plans that needed some modifications based on the county, and I said, let's put this on hold. If I had more time, I might, there's a, I might have a little storefront tasting room. But then it, cre it creates incredible complexity. And uh, as another physician friend of mine who has a winery said, it was more fun as a hobby. <laughs> so, uh, and so I'm trying to keep this as a hobby business. At least the IRS will think so. <laughs> so I'm not, I'm not really looking to turn this into anything bigger. Yeah, I'd, for me, the great joy is looking out every day over the vineyard, walking through it, um, and, and, and just being part of it. Um, so that's, that's the great joy. 
With that said, you obviously mentioned kind of the small lots and some things that you're, you're making that you don't grow. So are there other varietals, other projects you foresee that are things you haven't made yet that you'd like to mess around with? Yes, uh, a friend of mine um, who is uh, Brian Jourdain from Ileana Wines, he just planted Chenin Blanc. I love the grape. Uh, and in fact, it's actually one of the grape varietals that was mentioned in the Oregon wine experience uh, by the judges that they tasted some really good Chenin Blancs. And there are a number of them out there now. So hopefully there'll be a ton or so of fruit and I can make a really nice Chenin Blanc. Um, you know, again, you can't market every varietal and we have the ability to grow so many. But, I, you know, it's kind of like we were in um, uh, Piedmont and obviously the, the grapes that are marketed are Nebbiolo and, and Barbera and uh, Gavi and Arnais, and, but they actually grow some great Riesling and there are other varietals. It, it, is someone gonna necessarily go out and look for Piedmont Riesling? No, and, and I don't know that anybody's necessarily gonna go out and look for Rogue Valley Semillon, but I tasted it at one of the producers, a winery called Fences, made a really nice one, and, Eric uh, said, I, can, I have the ability to buy some nice semillon fruit. So I said, good, let's, you know, get me a barrel's worth and I'll be happy. Uh, so that's, that, that's where I see the growth in Peter William is just small lots, direct to consumer on those lots. Uh, we have uh, a winemaker, Scott Steingraber, I mentioned. Uh, he makes basically a barrel of fruit for us on some shared grapes. and. Uh, that's a, it, it's a club only. It has never seen the public. Um, it may this next year because we made a little bit more, but not much. It'll probably just be in some restaurants um, rather than in wine shops. We've not, we've purposely not tried to get into any national chains. So we are in local chains like Market of Choice. Uh, we're in Medford Co-op, Ashland Food Co-op, things of that nature, Harry and David, but not in national chains. And I think that's one of the things that helps us in marketing our wine is that we're not in Costco. Uh, you know, it's tough. You can't compete with Costco. And so once you're there, it's, it's a little hard to stay in wine shops and other uh, retail venues. Um, what else are you looking ahead to then? You mentioned um, more travel. Uh, tell, me about, tell me about so what you foresee the next year is looking like. Well, um, I'd like to continue working part-time. We'll see if they need me. Right now, as I said, they've gone from eight gastroenterologists to three partners. Uh, it's really hard to recruit, so I think they will need me to work part-time. Uh, we have two big trips this year. Um, we are going down the Nile. Uh, on a, you know, that's not your typical cruise, but we're gonna go down the Nile and uh, excited about that. That's in uh, February. And then in July, we're gonna be uh, heading to South Africa. And Brian Jordan of Ileana Wines is, uh, takes a trip every other year. Uh, he grew up there, so uh, he knows not just the country, but the winemakers and people uh, throughout the country. So that, we're looking forward to that. A little more skiing. Uh, Robin and I still ski, and uh, we bought our Icon passes this year, so we have to take advantage of that. Um, I'm embarrassed to say that I've never been to Brookings, the coast where we are. Uh, I'm looking forward to just a little weekend trip there. I mean, we just unfortunately haven't had a lot of time, so when we have time, we just are head out. Um, uh, we have so many places to go. Uh, for me, I spend money on three things, food, wine, and travel, nothing more. I, you know, 
I don't need anything else. That, that, fills, that, that fills up uh, my life, so. And having a winery, you're, it's, you're just throwing money into it. That, yeah, right. I mean, you know, it's, uh, it's wine education. It's, it's great. I mean, taking trips to Europe really has provided not just me. I mean, I, I know, for example, in one of the trips we went, Eric's been on a few of the trips, Eric Weisinger. And I think from that trip forward to Bordeaux, he's given up all American oak, uh, um, with the exception of Tempranillo, which in Spain they use American oak. So uh, we've kept that, but all the Malbec, uh, we experimented with a barrel back in uh, 2019 vintage. I told Eric, I want one new French oak barrel for me and for the Malbec, because we, we take all the Malbec fruit, he gets half, I get half. So I said, I want to see what, and we tasted the barrels, you know, barrel sampling, and I said, oh my God, this is just much better. The French oak just gives you a much sexier wine. And so we basically, from that day forward, have given up uh, uh, American oak for all the wines, with the exception of Tempranillo. So wine, you know, those trips, and you get an idea of which barrels, you know, you're looking at, and people, you know, talking to them uh, as to what works best for them, so. My, my knowledge is expanded by every wine trip. I'm sure it will be in South Africa. So looking forward to that. And what are you sort of seeing for the, you, you've talked about kind of how, how Oregon wine has grown, how, how the Medford area, specifically Rogue Valley, has grown. What do you see happening next in Oregon wine? We'll start, we'll start locally. What do you see kind of happening in the Rogue Valley? Hopefully getting national recognition. Um, there have been a few articles. Decanter did an article uh, about the Rogue Valley, and that was great. And we got listed in there um, as one of the, the wineries and one of the wines. Um, I think that it's getting more national recognition, getting people to stop chasing trophies. Uh, if I had to say, I mean, I did it in the past. It's not that I didn't buy you know, uh, Grand Cru Burgundies and, uh, and uh, first growth Bordeaux. I did, they were a lot less expensive than uh, when I did that. But I don't chase trophies anymore and I, hopefully people recognize uh, more that wine is a beverage that doesn't have to require a, a home equity line of credit to, to buy a bottle. Uh, that's, uh, that's really what it's come down to. And I think the Rogue Valley fits into that. Paso Robles is another place where they're making really good wine and it's not insanely expensive. Not to say that you can't spend a lot of money, uh, but I don't think there's a wine in the Rogue Valley that sells for more than 80 bucks. At least I don't think so. I think probably the most expensive is up there. So we haven't had a, tr and that's great. I mean, it sort of gets you back to that Napa 1979, 1980, 1982, when I was down there multiple times, and uh, wines were uh, affordable. So I, I'm hoping that's where the valley is and there's expansion. I know there'll be, there is starting to get some corporate interest, uh, and that'll change things a little bit. Um, and what happens is, as the uh, original wine owners and winemakers get old, they, they frequently have to sell out and cash out, and you don't have kids that want to run the business, so you never know what's going to happen. And, but I think there'll be more money coming into the valley that will also change the complexion, but also maybe lift uh, all the wines up. So I'm hoping that that's in some ways the case. 
and we'll just remain a small boutique winery and as long as I can do it and, uh, and as long as it's uh, uh, still fun. Wine people are fun. It's just nice to be part of wine people. Not to say that physicians aren't, but I can say wine people are more fun <laughs> comparing the two jobs. You have a lot of years of expertise here, so yes, I, I tend I, yeah, to believe you. Yeah, but of the people that are fun in medicine, gastroenterologists, they like to eat and drink, so it's okay. Uh, what about for Oregon wine sort of in general? You've seen, like I said, you've seen much of the evolution of it. Where is it going next? I think that the concern is climate change and the concern is the uh, certain areas like Dundee that are in the heart of the, the Willamette Valley and the warm sites uh, may end up getting too warm if we don't see any change. The Van Duzer Corridor, which has always been kind of that cooler uh, Pinot Corridor, that may become prime land and, and some of the best, uh, that those were questionable ripening. I, I'm, that, that is my concern for all regions, uh, you know, it's the climate change and what's going to happen over time. I, you know, it's, you can't predict the weather, you can't fully predict climate change, uh, and I think that that's going to be a concern. There may be greater diversity, new clones, others that uh, are uh, less susceptible to the heat, but, um, and I think that Rogue Valley in its sense is also trying to figure that out. I think people planted the wrong clones in the wrong place when they really didn't know. But you know, I, I suspect 500 years ago, they may have had some Pinot in Bordeaux and said, oh, this isn't good. And they may have had, you know, some uh, Cabernet and Burgundy go, eh, this isn't working for us. And it's taking a long time. Um, I think that there are, uh, you know, varietals like Gamay that are really being done well in the Willamette Valley. You know, Brickhouse, for example, makes delicious Gamay. Um, I think that uh, that's a varietal that we may see more of. I, I don't, you know, I'm not really good at predicting the future, but uh, I, things, you can't just continue doing what you're doing indefinitely without some change. All right, last question for you. Obviously, you've accomplished quite a bit in your career so far. Tell me about what your biggest accomplishment is or what you're proudest of as you sort of look back. Um, I would say being married for 37 years, having two uh, boys, um, and uh, having a family, a loving family. That's probably has to be number one. Um, and I'm proud that uh, my medical career that really is, you know, that's not, you know, it's not something you can throw money at and, and do well. It's something that you have to just continue to work hard and, and uh, continue to stay up. And uh, I'm very proud of my medical uh, professional career. Um, and the wine, it's just icing on the cake. Fantastic. That's all the questions that I have for you. Uh, is there anything I didn't ask that I should have? Anything we didn't? No, I think you now know my whole life. <laughs> the good, the bad, the ugly, exactly. it's all there. We've been, and the IRS even came up on this, so that, don't worry. You're, you're uh, okay, that we us. have to cut out. <laughs> Thank you so much for taking oh, the time. Oh, my pleasure. Was, it's us. been fun. Excellent. We appreciate it. Go ahead and let you off the hook. All right.
Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all our supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have helped make our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you from the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University, with a very special thank you to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.